You are tired of average. You want more out of life. You know you're capable of something greater. This show will help you become resilient in your home, at work, and in your community. Welcome to the Resilient Humans Podcast with your host, Kevin Wood. Welcome back to the Resilient Humans Podcast. And I have a great guest today. We actually have a mutual friend who just um, had a remarkable experience uh, summiting Mount Kilimanjaro. Uh, Adam Fat. So if you haven't listened to that episode, please do. And I'll actually be having him back on the show uh, as a recap uh, to talk about how that experience was. Today's guest is Miranda Ortez. And she also, uh, similar to Adam, has a medical condition called pulmonary fibrosis, which is a very, it's a, a condition that's not well known to many people. And so Miranda's here today to help us discover what it's all about, her story about how she's living with it, and what her future plans are. So Miranda, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me sitting here today. It's awesome to have you here. So tell us a little bit about yourself. So I I hear, this is just news from Adam, but you were one of the youngest diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis. Yeah, so apparently I am probably one of the youngest people that I've come across with pulmonary fibrosis. I was diagnosed um, when I was 12 years old, and I don't think I've ever met or come across anyone else younger than me. You know, I've joined a bunch of Facebook groups trying to figure out if there's someone out there around my same age, and it's been pretty hard trying to find younger people with it. Um, but yeah, 12 years old. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that condition? What, what is it exactly for our listeners that, that don't know? So pulmonary fibrosis is a lung disease that pretty much is progressive. It has no cure, um, and it's scarring in the lungs. So essentially your lungs become very stiff and they don't expand once that scarring starts, you know, taking over your lungs and it's harder to breathe. It's a restrictive type of illness. So I have very restrictive, um, I would say airflow right now I'm on oxygen and it's been pretty hard being able to live my daily life with, um, with PF now it's, it's pretty aggressive right now. Um, but overall it's, there's a life expectancy actually that is very, I would say outdated because there's people that have been living with it a little longer than that. The life expectancy is three to five years. And it's been like that for a very long time actually, but I actually will be turning 16 years in February next month with living with PF. Wow. So you're kind of a medical marvel. Kind of. Yeah, I would say <laughs> you, you and Adam are two peas in a pod, like he's right. doing all these crazy things with it. Yeah. Same thing. And not only that, you've also kind of beat the odds when it came to bearing a child. Yeah, no. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, she is like, oh, my story with my daughter. I, I wish I would have shared it whenever it was happening. Uh, my doctors, they were so impressed with the way I carried 
my pregnancy from the beginning to the very end. I don't know if you've ever seen Grey's Anatomy, but you know how whenever all the doctors go inside the room and there's like 15 to 20 doctors in there meeting that miraculous patient. Oh, I, had, yeah, yeah. I had that episode whenever I had my daughter at the hospital. They just all came in there and they were like, wow. Like one of them told me, I read your chart and I was waiting to see someone that was pretty much like on the verge of just looking so unhealthy. And I'm looking at you right now and you look nothing like what we read in, in your chart. Like, how do you feel? They're just asking me a bunch of questions, you know? And I was like, I'm just, I'm just here. I just had a baby. Like, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I feel great. Um, but if you want me to get a little further into the, the pregnancy story, I would love to share that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, um, I've always been told I can't have children because my, Ill my illness, pulmonary fibrosis, it pretty much will cause, um, a good chance of something called, uh, mortality. I believe it's called, uh, something about mortality. I'm not sure the exact word, but pretty much basically my lungs will either collapse or I will go into respiratory failure during the pregnancy or even during uh, labor. They wanted me to terminate. I was advised to terminate about two to three times. Uh, they asked me that question um, within my first trimester. I said, no, I was very adamant. And I said, I said, I wasn't going to do that because I was just against it at the time obviously. Um, and for some reason, I felt like I had angels on me because I had no medication during my pregnancy. I had no complications. I didn't need oxygen. I had such a very calm and relaxing pregnancy. I was high risk. I was being seen about very often. I was being seen like almost weekly, but everything came out good. You know, my daughter, she was a healthy baby girl. She was a little underweight. Uh, she was small, but other than that, she's six years old right now, and she's she's very healthy. She's very sassy, and she's just my she's my miracle. She's my miracle baby. That's awesome. It sounds like you're rewriting the medical textbooks for people, <laughs> right? Like if if you had that month that many doctors and nurses come in to to ask you questions and stuff, yeah. They're, they're trying to figure out how or why you're the anomaly. How are you different? Right. It's not, right? Yeah. You're not like a, a secret mutant or a superhero, <laughs> right? So there's something and it's, they don't, they don't understand it. They're trying to figure that out. So it's great that you can, you can be that, that example for them to say, just because you have this diagnosis, it's not, mm -hmm. it's not an immediate death sentence. And there are things that people can do outside of that. I mean, being in the health and fitness space, people were told for years, you shouldn't work out while you're pregnant. That was just I the common knowledge. And now it's, we just, we had two full classes today at the gym of parents that had just given birth. Totally normal these days. Yeah. And it's because of people like you that we get to rewrite those, those stories that, that people have about those myths that are, they're prevalent in our society. So, yeah. Well, I think it's Can more you... of like, uh, I'm sorry. I think it's no, more of like, uh, I would say a precaution, you know, and they also did mention that there's not a lot of 
data with women that would go to term with Pia and they were just going in blindly and just following my lead, I guess. And I was very lucky to have been able to experience motherhood. Can you can you give us a little bit of um pre-diagnosis? Like what what was life like for you growing up kind of before you knew this was the thing or before you were diagnosed? So I was diagnosed very young at 12. I would say I was, I don't know what grade I was in, maybe seventh grade. Um, and I've always been chronically ill because actually I do have arthritis as well. Um, I was diagnosed when I was nine years old and my arthritis is actually, it runs in the family. My mother has it. My grandmother, my mom's mom has it too. And I have it. Um, so growing up, I always had joint pain in my hands and feet mainly. And they actually believed that my RA affected my lungs somehow within the age of nine and 12 and it caused pulmonary fibrosis so my pf is actually um my diagnosis is that it's uh autoimmune uh related and growing up i was always exempt from the gym <laughs> which is not good but at the time i thought it was cool i was like okay let me just sit on the bleachers but I was exempt from the gym, so I never actually really worked out. I was not used to it. I'm still not used to it, um, you know, because of my restrictive breathing. And I didn't really do much other than just live my life as a young kid. And with my teenagehood with pulmonary fibrosis, I actually didn't know that about the life expectancy. I My mom never told me. So I grew up not knowing that I was... I had a chance of passing within three to five years after they told her I had pulmonary fibrosis. So I grew up not knowing. And I'm actually very, I appreciate that she never told me because I feel like the mind is very powerful. So if I knew, mm -hmm. I probably would have induced myself to that, you know, mentally. I don't know what I would have done at the time if I knew that I was going to just die within three to five as a teenager, it, it's very difficult to hear that kind of thing. So I think that has a lot to do with the fact that I grew up living normally, you know, other than just having a restrictive breathing. And my memory just breathing very, like, restrictive has always been in my life. I felt like I just, I don't remember the last time I actually know how it feels to breathe normally. If we're being, you know, honest right now. Um, I just thought the way I would breathe and like how much I can actually inhale was normal and when I started looking more into my medical history and my you know my chart and my results I was like whoa like how am I still alive I can't even inhale a liter as we speak today with both lungs like I am very like I have a little bit left that is helping me live through the day so growing up it was it was just I was normal. It was normal. I had, I had the same experience as most teenagers do. Um, but as I grew into adulthood and after I had my daughter, that's when everything started going downhill. What I know lung capacity is based on a percentage. Do you know what your percentage of your lung capacity is currently? Right now, I actually did my PFTs, which are 
pulmonary function test that I usually do um, with people with uh, lung disease, I was told recently that I'm at 20%. Um, and I think when I was referred into the transplant list that we'll be talking about that later, the transplant clinic, um, I was around 25%. And that was about okay. in November of a few months ago, actually. Okay. Now I'd like to know how has your life changed as this um, condition has progressed? You've obviously had to make some massive changes in your life. Like you live your life attached to an oxygen tank. Like that has to play a, a huge factor in the things that you're able to do in your day-to-day -day life. So initially when I started using my oxygen, which was about in August of 2021, about uh, two years ago, I would say three, two to three, almost two, three years ago, it was a little small box that was uh, electric. And when I knew that my illness was going downhill, I was like, you know what, I'm going to travel. I started traveling and um, the behind the scenes with with being able to travel and enjoy, you know, the beach or the mountains or trying to at least trying to hike or just going out with my family on, you know, different adventures and stuff with my daughter, making memories. It was hard. It was hard, the behind the scenes. And I've shared a few pictures and stuff on my social media when I was traveling, um, but it just I wish I would have recorded the behind the scenes to see that it was very difficult and I had to adjust just to be, you know, sitting on the beach with my daughter, watching her make sandcastles or, you know, that awesome hike where at the end of the hike, you see like a very nice landscape. I had to stop and take a breath about 30 to 40 times just for a small half mile hike, like things like that. Um, I had to pretty much learn my limits I would always push myself, push myself and check my heart rate. It was going 160, 165. And I was like, nope, I'm still going. I'm still going. And once I started feeling a little dizzy, I was like, you know what? I need to slow down. I need to know that my limits are like being reached and I'm like putting myself at risk. Let me just slow down and let me just live as much as I can. You know, um, also at home, I had to adjust right now. I have to rely on people to help me get through the day. Um, I don't really drive anymore because I do get like breathing attacks out of nowhere. So it's kind of um, dangerous to drive while you're coughing and you're not even like looking at the road. So I don't drive. Um, there was a time that I couldn't even go to the store for 10 minutes because I started getting, I started getting like a lot of phlegm started coughing a lot. So I would just turn around and wait in the car and wait for my husband or my mother to finish the groceries. And I could just go home and rest. And whenever I had the breathing attacks, you know, um, and the phlegm and the coughing and all that stuff go up and come out, I would have to, I would breathe. I mean, I'm sorry. I would um cough for about between 30 minutes to two hours nonstop. And it was very hard on my lungs and on my, just on my body that I would rest for the rest of the day. I would have to lay down and just relax because I couldn't do anything else. And that was with the little oxygen that I had at the time it was very weak. Um, I needed two liters at the time, but then they noticed that I needed more. 
I needed more oxygen. So then I transitioned into the big cylinders, the big um, metal ones. And I said, how am I going to hide this for my friends? How am I going to hide this in public? Oh my gosh. Like I need to go public. Like I need to tell people that I am sick and I should not be ashamed of it. So I actually went public with my medical struggles about a few months ago. And the amount of people that were shocked by how I've been hiding this for such a long time, they were amazed at how good I hit it. Um, only a few close friends knew about my struggles because, I mean, they saw what I was going through. They saw the breathing attacks. They saw everything. So um, I feel like going public with my story and showing people that, you know, I'm trying to live normally, but I have like side effects where I have to like adjust to feel normal. You know, it's, it's hard. And I've only received nothing but positivity from people and telling me like, you're very strong and, you know, I can't believe you're going through this. Keep going, keep sharing your story. You're going to reach the right people that will, that you might even help out somehow with whatever you're going through. I, I obviously creeped out your Instagram um, prior to you coming on here. And I noticed that shift. I read some of the captions that you had posted and one of them was, I'm done hiding. Yeah. I'm going to show it how it is and how admirable and courageous you have to be in order to do that. Because I know how stories work with people and, and you've hit it for so long. So it wasn't, it wasn't a part of your true identity, even though it was part of you, it wasn't part of how you were displaying yourself to others. And that right. to, to shift that, that takes guts. It takes a lot. And you. like you said, you're receiving a lot of positivity as a result of doing that. Did that feel like a weight being lifted off your shoulders when you were free to express who you actually are? It did. It actually felt, I, I felt such a relief. And you know, when I was like typing that, that for that post that you're talking about, I know what you're talking about the one with the little video of me, like at the edge of a, it looks like, a, I don't know, like a clip or something. Yeah. Um, I, it took me days to write that. I was trying to see, I, I was trying to write exactly how I felt. So it actually took me like a full day to hit post and mm -hmm. I actually didn't post it like I think my brother did or my husband I'm not sure which one I was like can you post it for me like I don't want to post it so okay. I was very I was very shy and like worried that it was going to be something negative or like see some hate or something I don't know why like I have social media anxiety so just seeing so much positivity and a bunch of people with the hashtags that started following me and reaching out and telling me, Hey, I have pulmonary hypertension. It's not the same thing, but I have lung disease and I actually do need a transplant too. Like, you know, I want to follow you, et cetera, et cetera. Or I can't believe you had a baby at, with PF, you know, this is so inspiring. So I was like, Oh my gosh, like my story has made a little bit of a change or actually helped someone out there to give them some hope that they're not alone, that, you know, there's other people going through the same struggle as myself. So I just felt, it felt good. It felt really good. 
it's a ripple effect. And that ripple is only going to get bigger and bigger as you go. Oh, definitely. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. It has to. You'll see. You're going to be on stages down the road giving speeches about your story. I'm going to plant that seed now. Ah, So did I. So did I. That was a story that I told myself when I was in school. Do not put me in front of the class. Face would go beat red. I'd start sweating profusely. I did not want to talk in front of a class. And now I give speeches in front of hundreds of people. I actually do community theater now and act. And sometimes in my underwear. Never in a million years would that have happened, you know, 20 years ago. So you you never say never. You just have to break break through the story, right? So looking looking ahead, you you kind of led up to this uh, a little bit earlier, but you are on the list for a transplant. Tell us a little bit about that process and what that's like. So I'm not on the list yet. I actually received a call um, prior to us meeting right now, um, and I haven't posted or any said anything because I had no time to update my you know my friends and people that have been supporting me with this. But I've actually been deferred which is pretty much you know like they paused my case because um there's a few bumps on my case that they have to adjust you know um with my other illness that I do have as well um that's called dermatomyositis and I'll go into further detail about that later because it it greatly affected my chances at being listed very soon as they wanted me to but I'm not on the list yet. Um, the process was very hard. I'd say they put me through a bunch of testings within a five-day frame. I had to stay at the hospital for five days. Um, a bunch of blood work. I'm talking about like 30 to 40 vials of blood. I had to get a, oh my gosh, I forgot what that, what that uh, mini surgery was called, but they basically went through my I would say carotid right here in my neck. They went through my neck like with a needle and they checked my heart to make sure it was good. I passed that. Um, and then I also had to do a lot of x-rays, full body x-ray. I had to do CT scans um, with and without um, some kind of like ink, I would say. I would I would have to like, it, they would put like in my vein. Yeah, like, like a dye there it goes, the dye. And then I also had to do um, I had to drink barium. They were doing the swallow test. I had to drink, I had to eat radiated eggs for breakfast. And they had to check, you know, make sure that my my stomach was um, digesting it good. I passed that as well. I passed everything except one test. And I haven't posted it yet because I've actually been learning how to cope with the news. Um, I actually they just told me about that news last week. So I've been coping with it and accepting it and putting it behind me and just going, keep going further and, you know, just keep looking ahead and not behind me. Um, I didn't pass one test and that one was probably the most important one. Well, they're all important, but this one was very important. And this test has a lot to do with, um, eating an aspiration into the lungs which is essentially like the food or food particles going into your lungs 
So a normal person, you they do aspirate, you know, food whenever you choke or they say, oh, I went through the wrong, you know, went through the wrong hole or whatever, like the food or the water. Um, we have um, an immune system that they see like the, the lungs receive like water or food or whatever, and the immune system attacks it so it won't cause an infection. So right now I don't have a compromised immune system because I'm not in any immunosuppressants right now. So my system is actually fighting back whatever I aspirate to my original lungs. With my transplanted lungs, I can't do that. I will be on an immunosuppressants for life. So my, my lungs won't be rejected by my own body. With that being said, I won't have an immune system and whatever I eat and goes into my lungs, it will basically cause an infection and then it would lead to uh, rejection. And they want to avoid that. The test that I failed, which is pretty much called a esophageal manometry test, um, it showed that my esophagus had little to no muscle anymore. Um, and I asked them, why don't I have a muscle or like, so my food can go down my stomach correctly. They said that the myositis or dermatomyositis, my other illness, basically messed up the muscles from my esophagus. And um, yeah, that's pretty much what I had to blame. Like the uh, messed up my esophagus. So now I have to find another route to see if I can get the transplant. And um, they actually told me, and this is the news that I had to like deal with for like a week. They told me that they would consider putting me on the transplant list if I agreed that I would have to go into, um, uh, how can I say this? If I agreed that I would be, how can I say this one? If I pretty much agreed that I would have to receive a feeding tube for life, that's what they told me. So I was like, what? Like I can't eat anymore. And um, at the time I did cry, you know, I cried mm. in front of the doctor and I was like, oh my gosh, like you're telling me I can't eat anymore. And what about drinking? He said, no, he said, your esophagus is so damaged that if you eat or drink, there's a good chance within the first year, if you eat or drink, there's a good chance that you might have rejection and it would lead to death. He basically told me that in those exact words. And I said, okay. Um, he said, you can think about it. You don't have to accept this right now. My husband was there and he was just shocked because we thought we were in the green. And I, I had a feeling that I was going to fill that test because I didn't do good. I couldn't even breathe with that tube down my nose when they were trying to measure all that stuff going down my esophagus. Um, so I knew that there was some bad news, but I didn't know it was this bad. And pretty much when they told me that I was like, okay, I can't eat. Yeah, that's fine. Like I'll adjust, you know, feeding to whatever it's fine. And they said, he said, it's not just that. Like he told me it's birthday cakes, it's family dinners, it's Thanksgiving, Christmas food. When you go out, you know, to places, um, dinner dates with your husband, you know, um, brunch with your friends. And I'm like, oh my God, like stop. Like I, I didn't even think it through. And I'm like, you're right. So I, I went home and I didn't give them the green light that I said I would accept it yet. It took me two days. And my husband and I were just talking back and forth. And I told my mother, 
And it was very shocking for my family to receive this news because they're like, you can't eat at all. She's like, no, not if I want these lungs. But, you know, at the, at the same time, I have to sacrifice something in order to receive something else. And I, in my opinion, it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it um, because I will be receiving more time with my daughter. That's how I see it. Right. I will give what's, up. What's food. the alternative? Yeah. I will be giving up right. food in order for me to be here to watch my daughter grow. And I think it's worth it as a mother. I think it's worth it. People might think I'm crazy or like, cause I did post it on some Facebook group that I'm in with transplant. And I did receive one negative comment and she was like, it's not just giving up food. Like, trust me, it's so difficult. And I don't want to be like, you know, sassy Susan or something like that. She said, She's like, I don't want to be the bad guy here, but it's going to suck. And everyone else was more positive. And I was like, you're the first negative person, but you don't, I don't care what you say. Like, I know it'll be worth it. And I, I did want to respond and say, if it gives me more time with my daughter, food is not worth it. It really isn't, you know, and it kind of sucks. And right now I'm just saying it, but I'll adjust and I'll get through it. So yeah, pretty can much. I, um, can I take you through a little bit of a thought? thought exercise with this. Okay. There's, there's two worlds that, that we live in. One is reality and the other is our expectation. And so when you were given that news, you had the expectation that life would go on. You get to eat all the birthday cakes and celebrate and go all out. But reality is saying the other thing, the other reality is saying you can't do that. And when those two worlds don't match up, that's when those internal emotions and conflict come up like it it sucks it hurts yeah but eventually eventually your expectations are going to match your reality and it won't suck as bad it will get better yeah. we all get used to it right mm -hmm. it's it's like people that that do ice baths does it suck at first yep does every cell in your body tell you to get out yep but eventually you get used to it and then you start looking mm -hmm. forward to it. And then you start to appreciate the times when you're not in water that's freezing. And so everything will shift, but it's at that moment in time where that reality and expectations are really far apart that it's, it, everything just sucks at that point, but it will get better. It yeah, does. You know, we've seen it time and time again, using various examples from, from all over the world. So. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. And I think a big part of it also has to do with staying positive, even though it's hard. It's hard. It's tough. It's tough being 28 years old and having these medical issues thrown at you at such a young age. I'm used to it. Like you said, reality and expectation. I'm used to it. You know, I'm used to throwing, being thrown a bunch of bad news back to back to back. But, you know, I've noticed and I've realized that regardless of what they throw at me, I always try to for some reason, I always come back bouncing much even like something that they would not even expect from me. Like I already defeated the odds with living with PF for more than what they said I would and that I would live. And then also I pretty much had a daughter when they said I couldn't. And now they're saying that, you know, I can't eat. And I'm not saying I might not, but they're, they did say that there's a 10% chance that I might be able to eat it when you I broke do. all the other records. Why not this right. one? Yeah. That I might be able to eat. 
And I'm like, okay, I'm holding on to that 10%, you know, and even if it doesn't go my way, at least I, I tried and I will still, you know, exchange living longer, exchange it that with food. Like I will definitely do it. Like there's no backing out with me that I will just keep moving forward and stay positive with whatever they throw at me. Do you feel like your mindset and positivity has been improved or altered because you have the daughter? Definitely. Oh yeah, no, for sure. I say that all the time. People always ask me like, how can you just, how do you do it? Like, what is, what is your, what is your secret? Like, why, what is, what are you holding on to that keeps you going with, with this, what, what you're going through right now? And I say, um, I didn't know at the time, I didn't know what it was. And then it just hit me one day and I said, it's my daughter. Like my daughter is the reason why I am, I'm trying harder. And I think if it wasn't for her, you know, it kind of sucks saying this, but I probably would have given up a long time ago. So there's a reason why she's here and she's, she's my medical miracle. And she's also my savior. Like she saved me and she continues to do so just by being here. That's powerful. Oh yeah. That's a really, a really <laughs> powerful thought. Yeah. Do you have anything you would like to share with our listeners that we haven't um, talked about yet? Well, I did mention that I wanted to talk about my other illness. I believe it's dermatomyositis, which is essentially the reason why my esophagus, the muscle of my esophagus kind of messed up. Um, I was diagnosed with that, I think in February of 2020, before the lockdown happened here in the US um, with COVID and stuff. That what that is, it's basically muscle and skin inflammation, and it also is muscle uh, atrophy. So I don't have a lot of muscle mass anymore. And during the year that I was diagnosed, I actually started throwing up daily. I couldn't eat a lot, and I think that's where the the esophagus issue started. I threw up for a whole year, um, nonstop. Like I mean, not nonstop, but like two to three times a day for a whole year or so before they try to like figure out what they can do for me. Like the doctors, I lost about 40 pounds. Like within like five months, I was like down 40 pounds. And it probably sounds amazing to people that are trying to lose weight, but whenever you're like tiny, it's not, it's not cool. Like it sucks. Mm -hmm. And I'm still trying to gain it, but it's very hard to gain weight whenever my heart is working twice as hard to just have my lungs, you know, keep going. So I'm actually losing twice as much calories as a regular person. So I need to eat twice as much, but then I don't have appetite because I I have a messed up esophagus and like, I don't really keep food down. So I can't eat. So there's like a lot of issues that I've had that I can't do this because this has happened like a cause and effect. And I'm trying to figure out like what I can do, but pretty much DM messed me up it, and it's not known. It's very rare. So you can, it actually kind of like, how do I say it? It basically is kind of like arthritis. And whenever you start feeling symptoms with it, you think it's arthritis, like whenever your joints hurt, but it really isn't. It's, it's myositis. So um, I also want to 
start being an advocate with that. I want to spread awareness with DM as well, because, you know, there's not a lot of people that spread awareness with pulmonary fibrosis, but also dermatomyositis, like it is a beast. Like it is, it probably is the reason why I'm in this position right now. If it, if I didn't have this, I probably would have been in the list already, but you know, it kind of sucks. And I wish I can find a way to show my story, like from beginning to end, to tell people like how I got here and I don't know I just it'll it'll come one day like I'll have the opportunity to do so but I just wanted to share that with you know with the people that are listening right now that you know if they look into that too it sucks it really sucks yeah I'd love you to tell our listeners uh, I ask ask all of my guests the same question I'd like to hear how you would describe the word resiliency what does that mean to you? So resiliency, to be resilient, I think I think it has a lot to do with, obviously, with what life throws at you and how you respond to it. Um, with me and with everything that I've said today, I believe that it teaches you to see life differently. It teaches you to find the good in the bad, like in the bad news and everything negative that life throws at you, find that small positivity and make it into something bigger. Hold on to it. You know, don't, don't just go negative and just give up. Not giving up has a lot to do with resilience. I would say in my case, um, just keep moving forward. Find something that you can hold on to. Find motivation. Find something that is worth fighting for. Um, you know, everyone's struggle is different. Everyone's medical struggle is different. But at the end of the day, we have something in common, which would be that we just want to get through it. And I think, you know, holding on to being resilient and being, you know, just how would I say it? Like, I'm trying to figure out the correct words to say it because I have like so much going through my mind right now. But just to be resilient is pretty much just being like tough, but not like in a, like I'm tough, like, but being strong within like mentally and emotionally being strong and not letting it like step over you. We have to just keep going. We have to live life. We have to see the positive in things because if we stay negative, we attract it. We attract negativity. You know, we got to keep being positive, even though like you're giving the worst news of your life and you're like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? What it like, it'll pass. It will pass. And you will look back at it and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I lived through that. So just, you know, just staying positive overall. That's what I would say. I know the people that are listening to this would all 100% agree that you are an embodiment of resiliency. You've, as, as you said, you found out your motivation, which is really your why it's your why to keep going, to keep okay. pushing through, to find those positives. Like there's a 10% chance I could still eat. That's focusing on the positive. That's focusing on your why. And that's yeah. what, that's what I believe is part of being a, a resilient human. And so you, you embody that 
And I hope this message reaches many people that will help them through their moments of darkness as well. I hope so too. I really do. Randa, it's been an, an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Uh, thank you so much. And I, I'm wishing you all of the best and I hope all of the news that you get going forward is nothing but positive. No, I hope so too. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others or leave a rating and review to catch all the latest episodes. Be sure to subscribe and I'll see you next time.